Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking nuclear power, focusing in on the difference between perception and reality. The reality of installed capacity versus forecasts that have been made over the years and the perceptions today, and also the difference between forecasted production of power and the realities of what's going on. What's the role of nuclear power in the energy transition? What are the true economics in nuclear power? And what might the future hold with new technological developments, if any? Our guest is Michael Schneider. Michael is an independent and international energy and nuclear policy analyst. He's had 40 years focused on the industry itself. Michael is also the lead author and publisher of the World Nuclear Industry Status Report an annual report focused on the status and trends in the international nuclear industry. Michael has been advisor to governments, organizations, companies around the world. As always, you can support the show by leaving us a positive comment or review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Michael, thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to have the discussion. We are essentially going to focus in on the disparity between perception and reality when it comes to nuclear power, particularly around these two key terms we're going to be using a lot, capacity and production. Before we dig into the current state of nuclear power around the world, can you give us a quick potted history from the sort of 70s onwards and also give us some definitions around those crucial terms we're going to be using so that we're all on the same page? Right. Actually, We just hit the 70th birthday on the 20th of December of the first electricity generation by a nuclear power plant. Uh, That was the experimental breeder reactor and in the US uh, that lit up, I think it was four light bulbs. (laughs) So it's it's like 70 years of uh, nuclear generated electricity and it's also the date when the first commercial reactor, like a a little bit larger reactor that was grid connected in in, uh, 1954, has undergone the construction start. So it's really a 70-year-old history. So what happened after these first 20 years of experimental reactors, demonstration plants, um, basically small Uh, sized reactors below, most of them below 100 megawatts, was then the um, oil crisis, so-called oil crisis in 1973. That led really to a very major rethink about the potential of uh, nuclear power. And many countries envisaged to launch uh, major nuclear power programs and it's startling when you when you look at the forecasts that happened in those years for the year 2000 because i mean that's now 20 years ago it was basically envisaged forecasted by international organizations like the international atomic energy agency or the nuclear energy agency of the oecd in various scenarios but the most likely development of nuclear power was imagined being around um, uh, for three and a half, at least three and a half thousand 
megawatts, 3,500 gigawatts. And if you compare that with reality, that it's roughly a factor 10 below that was actually realized. So it was a strange situation. It was really something where societies in various countries and leaders and industry thought that nuclear power would pick up big when it comes to electricity generation, and it did not happen. And that 3,500 gigawatts, in 2000, what percentage of generation was that, overall generation capacity was that going to be, was that percentage-wise? I don't remember the exact figure, but it was uh, definitely also within a framework of the expectation of consumption going uh, significantly. There was there was kind of a dogma that said, you know, electricity consumption in industrialized countries would double every 10 years. So that didn't happen. So it's less a question of, uh, you know, the share in installed capacity than this kind of misperception of the possibilities of energy efficiency that made a huge difference. So by the end of the 1970s, it was very clear that the dogma of doubling every 10 years consumption did not happen neither. And and everything else uh, came with that. So we had a sort of a split between economic development and uh, electricity and energy consumption. And that had a very major impact on nuclear programs as on, on you know, other energy programs. Yeah. And then just very briefly, in the terminology we're using, installed capacity, production, scale, can you just give us a quick overview of those terms so that we're all ready to move forward? Right. There are a number of terms like construction start of a nuclear power plant. Now, people always imagine that this is a term that that describes the um, sort of when you start site preparation for the construction of a, or the construction of roads or infrastructure, et cetera. That's not the case. The technical definition is the first pouring of concrete for the reactor building's basement. So the base slab con, um, uh, concreting is the con- considered the construction start. Sometimes it happens years after the actual first Uh, shuffle in the ground and infrastructural work. The second point is when we talk about uh, reactor startup, we consider grid connection. In other statistics, it's considered commercial operation, which can take place months or even years after the grid connection. We don't think that is an appropriate determination, characterization of the actual functioning of the plant. So we consider grid connection and grid disconnection, uh, in fact, as the the closure of a nuclear power plant. When we talk about production, we mean the electricity generation coming out of the um, uh, nuclear power plant, and that is fed into into the grid. We are always considering net generation and not the, the electricity consumption the, the reactors have on their own, because it's obvious that a nuclear power plant cannot actually function without electricity, as we have seen in accidents like Fukushima. Uh, so th- these are maybe the, a few significant terms. Um, when we consider maybe one additional, what is an operational reactor? It's quite strange that 
organizations like the International Atomic Energy Agency would consider, for example, around 25 reactors that have not generated any power for at least 10 years in Japan as operational and in operation. We don't think that's an appropriate description of reality. So we consider that a reactor that has not generated any power in the previous calendar year and in the first six months of the current year is in a long-term outage and not operational. So those are, I guess, the main terms. And we're talking install capacity in gigawatts and production in terawatts, basically. No, we're talking uh, installed capacity either in megawatts, so that a large reactor would be like 900 or 1,000 uh, megawatts installed capacity or one equal one gigawatt. We're talking uh, production. We're generally talking about terawatt hours, uh, which is, so it's the capacity by time. And uh, a terawatt hours is a billion kilowatt hours. Perfect. Okay, so back in 1974, you had these great expectations about what nuclear power, what the role nuclear power would play in global electricity production, which weren't met. And we'll come back to the potential Chernobyl story within that. But you, we're in, we're up to 2000. What were the predictions in 2000 for what nuclear power production would be in 2020? By that time, it was quite different from, from country to country. I thought it was interesting to look back on the largest uh, uh, nuclear electricity generator in the world, which is the French state-controlled Electricité de France, or EDF, uh, that, uh, like uh, in many, many other countries, had great expectations. But it started really with the American uh, nuclear power 2010 program, uh, because at that time, a lot of industry actors, stakeholders were expecting a, a sort of a renaissance. This was not the first time the term was used, but it's been massive at that point when the Department of Energy launched the Nuclear Power 2010 program with the objective of at least uh, two new reactors operating in the U.S. by 2010. And uh, obviously the reality in 2020 was uh, uh, zero uh, new reactors operating there's just uh, two reactors that are currently under construction. But a few years later, uh, uh, back to the largest operator, EDF, it forecasted for 2020 a net addition of something like 110 gigawatts. So always thinking gigawatts as, a, as equivalent of reactors, a large reactor with 1,000 megawatts, one gigawatt, that's, that's approximate, gives you an idea. So. If we see what it ha happened in, in reality, there was basically a, a total stagnation of the installed capacity um, between 2008 and, and 2020. So it's kind of striking how bad the forecasting capacity in the industry has proven over the years. Which is just remarkable. I'm just looking at sort of the reality of... 2020 and on balance it's down one reactor right in terms of startups versus closures and nuclear power at the moment globally represents about 10 percent 
of production versus those, I guess, very optimistic projections back in the 70s and again in the 2000s. It's really, it is a very striking difference between the expectation and the reality. If you may, I I can add actually a first estimate of what happened in 2021. Please. According to what we know at this point, there were 10 announced reactor closures around the world, including three that have made quite some uh, noise that uh, uh, closed in Germany, but also, and a lot less noise, three closed were announced as closed in the UK. Uh, that's six, pl- uh, you know, plus a number of other reactors in, in other countries that, that were closed, and six connected to the grid. So it's 10 closed versus six started up. And if you look in terms of capacity, the net differential is minus 3.5 gigawatts. So it's remarkable if you if you think about it, what what you can read uh, here in the radio, uh, uh, what you can see on television as the perception in terms of a blooming industry. And in fact, uh, the differential in 2021 was negative. Yeah, and, and I guess that's the that's the journey I've been on. Just our previous discussions and 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 reading into this is that, that there is that stark disparity. I want to come back a couple of segments time to kind of the current, I guess, landscape of of which it is very much now sort of a less of a global phenomenon as much more regional one. So I guess the elephant in the room to some extent, but perhaps not the biggest player in what's going on, has obviously been Three Mile Island, but more importantly, Chernobyl in the 80s and then in Fukushima in in, in the early 10s. What role have they played in this scenario? Basically, what, what happened was that when Three Mile Island happened, was already beyond the major uh, sort of expectations that took place, especially in the United States. There were a lot of cancellations of orders for nuclear reactors. And it's interesting to see that the last reactor that was uh, started to being built uh, in the United States and that actually was connected to the grid was Watts Bar 2 that started building in 1973. Uh, in fact, all the reactors that were under were started to being built and ordered between 73 and uh, Three Mile Island, when Three Mile Island happened, the end of the 70s, w- were canceled. Uh, so the largest number of construction starts in the world, like the historic maximum, was in 1976. So when when Three Mile Island happened, it was already in a situation of crisis. The industry it became clear that you know the the consumption of electricity would not develop as uh, imagined uh, only five years earlier. And a similar situation is true for other parts of the world. In nineteen uh, when in 1986 uh, Chernobyl happened, in fact most of the programs were already. Uh, slowed down or almost completed uh, in, in terms of planning and and um, implementation. Very few reactors in, in Europe were actually started building after that moment. So 
it is obvious that these accidents had a major impact, but they made a crisis of the industry worse. The same is true uh, for the Fukushima disaster that started in 2011. We had in 2010 15 construction starts in the world, 15, which was a kind of an intermediate peak, but 10 of those were in China. And uh, so what happened from then on was basically nothing much different. There were a, a few construction starts here and there. We had in 2021, as far as we know now, sometimes we get information only a few days later that which just happened with with a Chinese reactor. But we have 10 uh, construction starts on the list in the world, of which six in China. And we have four that are built by the uh, Russian nuclear industry, uh, one of which in the country and uh, three outside, two in two in India and, and one in Turkey. So that's pretty much the description of the picture. China builds at home, Russia builds in, in, in other countries. And that situation is pretty much reflecting what happened since the, the Fukushima accident, meaning that there is not much building at all. And the industry was in difficulties internationally prior to the 2011 events in Japan. So that, again, that's another one of these stark sort of differences between the reality and the perception, because I think the really perception is that Fukushima had the greatest impact, and that's why the, you know, we haven't seen the increase in installed capacity that was expected. But as you pointed out in previous discussions and alluding to here, it was already in crisis, and already you were advising the German government in, in the 2000s, already there was commitments to no new builds, no new starts. I get the, the point that demand didn't go up as expected, but what is going on here? What What is it in the fundamental economics of nuclear power that meant that there hasn't been the starts, there hasn't been the growth that was expected? Well, I think it's obviously an economic issue, but it's it's an overall societal issue. For example, if Germany phases out nuclear power, this is not like some kind of crazy idea of Chancellor Merkel, so as it's sometimes described. This is a it's it's an, a four decade long process that you know with endless discussions. Uh, with for example, in in 1986, after Chernobyl happened, there were uh, in Germany 20 nuclear phase out scenarios that were uh, released. 20 in eight months. So. This is a long societal debate that not only is about economics, but it's obviously also about safety issues. It's it's about societal compatibility with democracy. There are many, many areas that are to be looked at and that, that have been evaluated. By the way, the term that made it into English, Energiewende, uh, the, the energy transition, was first uh, published in 1980. It gives you a good idea of for how long this discussion has been taking place. And you mentioned that the, the year 2000. Indeed, uh, it's around the same time that the Belgian government introduced uh, legislation that was then passed to phase out nuclear power by 2025, which has been confirmed with governments ever, ever since. So one has to look at over the longer term and then what happened over the past 10 years. 
And over the past 10 years, it's not only a matter of implementing what has been uh, sort of assessed over decades, but it's also that the competitors of nuclear power have dramatically changed. Obviously, in the United States, fracking has played a huge role in bringing down natural gas prices. But globally, it's really renewables that have changed everything. And if you look at at grid-connected solar power that has dropped in levelized cost of energy, LCOEs, that is the, the cost assessment over lifetime of a given electricity generating facility. Solar has dropped by a factor of 10, 90%. Wind has dropped by uh, 70%. And nuclear has increased by about a third. You mentioned there that so you've got the LCOEs of most of the other generation types have been dropping, and in the case of renewables, quite dramatically. And also, these markets have also become deregulated, which means that forecasting, being able to sell your power forwards for 30 years to a government has gone away for a lot of the, for Europe and the US. Why is it? I mean, these plants cost billions of dollars to build, so huge upfront costs. Why has there the LCOE of, of nuclear gone up? As I, from my reading, I understand only is it Korea and India have managed to actually reduce the costs over the past decade. Well, it's indeed a negative learning curve, <laughs> which is quite surprising. But I mean, the, the biggest difference between technologies like uh, solar and wind uh, with nuclear power is the number. When we just said, you know, you, there were six nuclear reactors in the world that were connected to the grid. Six. We are talking millions and millions of solar panels and solar facilities that are be, being built or, or, you know, hundreds of thousands, literally hundreds of thousands of, of wind turbines. So the learning process in fabrication and implementation is impossible the same way for a nuclear plant. If you make a mistake in the design of a nuclear plant, well, to learn from it, it might be another reactor that you're building, you know, 10 years later. And it's it's one of the, 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 the cr- crucial differences of any nuclear reactor being built anywhere. All of them are very small programs, except for China. China is building larger numbers of reactors, even if they remain, you know, the the total number remains very small. I mean, if you have 50 some reactors operating, it's 50 units compared to millions of uh, uh, solar panels and hundreds of thousands of, of turbines. But you qualify, you qualify teams of workers and, you know, engineers that you move from one project to the other. Uh, And that is impossible if you're just building like one nuclear plant per country. So what what happened was that the while the the standard, the technological, technical specifications for nuclear power plants became more stringent over years, over the years, again, with an, uh, an event like Fukushima, obviously, you know, most of the countries, strangely enough, not really the United States, but most of the countries have wondered, what do we have to add to our nuclear power plants, uh, whether the existing ones or new ones, 
to make such a disaster impossible. So that means more spending more money. But finally, we're in a, in a globalized economy today. And that means that at a, at a construction site like in, in Finland, for example, there were over 50 nationalities building that facility. Now imagine you have this Portuguese you know, cement worker discussing with his Polish colleague in pidgin English how to pour that you know, cement according to technical specifications of for a nuclear power plant. It's complicated. It's complicated. So all of this makes leads to situations where quality cannot be guaranteed, where it turns out that whether it's in concrete, in steelworks, or in complex machineries, there are quality issues that turn up too late. So pieces have to be redone, refabricated, and that can happen on site or it can happen in the factories. Uh, and, and all of this leads to delays and leads to cost increases. And there's a scale thing here as well, because you talk about, you know, obviously, if you're a state-run utility in China, building many of these, that becomes more economical than a large utility based in Europe or the US, who for the most part over the last, certainly the last decade, as a consequence of there being a different group of producers for renewables energy competing with them, have actually suffered, right? Most of their balance sheets have shrunk and their capacity to take on these kind of projects, even if they were more viable, is much more limited. The decline in share value is, has been absolutely dramatic. I mean, today, you know, a to, to stay with the example of EDF, uh, you know, the, the company at the height of its share value, uh, it was around 85 euros per, per share. Today, as we speak, it's around 10. So, you know, and it's fluctuating, let's say, between 8 and 12 or so. So it's an absolute dramatic uh, decline in value. And that also means, obviously, where comes the capital from uh, in order to build these things? And then this transitions us nicely into the slightly more worrying aspect, which is we've kind of covered, okay, so there's been this disparity between what was expected to be built and what has actually been built and also what's been shut down. We then talk about performance because when I look at the, I think in your, the global status report, the world status report, you know, it's the average age of a reactor is now 31 years, which is, you know, as, as you and I spoke offline, you know, if your car's 31 years old, it's doing pretty well if it's still uh, running, but it definitely doesn't have Monday equipment inside it. And this is a really, I mean, very much in the news as we talk today with what's going on in France and around the world, as lots of these reactors are becoming on offline for unscheduled repairs. What, what's going on with the fleet right now that's exacerbating a lot of, you know, that's meaning they're not able to step up to the, to the plate in times of high energy prices? It's staggering because, in fact, people have been superficially assessing the current situation as a consequence out of the huge increases in gas, natural gas prices, which, of course, is true to some extent. But France uh, provides, uh, generates more than half, usually more than half of the electricity of all nuclear power plants in Europe and has installed more than half of the nuclear reactors uh, in, in the European Union. Uh, so what we're seeing is a staggering incapacity of the operator to actually have to guarantee 
the reactors online when they're most needed. France has a huge peak load uh, in winter because it's using a direct resistance electric space heating. It's heating. It's like toaster type heating systems. Very inefficient, especially if you have uh, badly insula insulated homes. So in winter, the necessary capacity to generate electricity increases by about 2.4 gigawatts. So call it two equivalent two large reactors. For every degree centigrade, the thermometer falls. I say this again because it's, it's amazing. For every degree that the thermometer falls, and sometimes it does actually fall 10 degrees or more within 24 hours, you need the equivalent of 2.4 gigawatts or the equivalent of two reactors. So what happened just uh, you know less than two weeks ago is that there was thermometer dropped below zero and about a third of the nuclear fleet was inoperable in, in France. So all of the neighboring countries, I mean all, all countries that have a, a border with France have exported power to France to maintain the grid. And to give you an order of magnitude, it was 13 gigawatts, up to 13 gigawatts. So up to more than the equivalent of 10 reactors. And guess what? Over 60% of that capacity was made available by two countries. Germany and Belgium, two nuclear phase-out countries, over 60% of that. So right now, you have one country that is particularly worried about the nuclear phase-out in, in Germany and in Belgium. That is the, the most nuclear country in the world, France. Can you just help us understand what is going on? I mean, is this a typical... I know this, you know, or, or it's not out of the ordinary that this number of organ plants will be down. It's just poor timing weather-wise. Or is this a pattern that's playing out globally that you've just got an aging fleet? You've got operators who have, dare I say it, you know, what you pointed out, who have had challenging economic period, and you've just had a lack of investment. What we, is, is this something we can expect more of? And, and kind of why are these downtimes just so much more extended than was expected even you know when they say it's going to be down for a two days maintenance turns out to be two weeks or two months or six months exactly well the, the main reason is as you said earlier i mean when you have a facility that is in france on average now over 36 years old then you take out one part and you had estimated when you when you identified the part as having failed you estimate the time it takes to replace it. And then it turns out that once you have taken out the part, everything underneath is rotten. So it's not at all what you expect at the beginning of the situation. We have made a very precise assessment, reactor by reactor, in 2019, for the year 2019. And it turned out that between the beginning the day of uh, reactor shutdown for maintenance and, and refueling, repairs, whatever, and the real reconnection to the grid, there was an increase of outage time of 44%. Now, 44%, what does that mean? It, mean, it meant in that year 1,700 reactor days 
of unavailability that were not planned for. That's huge. And that's obviously, you can imagine that if this is not only an import dependence on other countries, it's also at times where we have seen electricity prices going through the roof. So France is actually exporting electricity when it's hardly worth anything due to long-term commitments or because <laughs> operators in other countries just make their calculation and it's worthwhile to import French electricity because they sell it cheaper than what they can generate or what is in the market. But they have to import electricity to France at points in time when <laughs> the electricity is enormously expensive. And what we have seen is unprecedented over the past few years, absolutely unprecedented. And this is not only on the stock market, but we have seen unprecedented prices for the months to come and even for the year 2021. Yeah, I have two questions. One is, is this scenario playing out globally? Are we seeing the same thing in the US where you've got a similarly aged fleet? And secondly, and I don't want to get sort of alarm, be alarmist in any way, but does this start to set up a quite worrying scenario when you've got real pressure, both from an economic standpoint, prices are high, and even from a political standpoint, where it becomes a governmental issue when reactors are going offline, does this set up a scenario where we could see reactors potentially running when they shouldn't be, or that maintenance, crucial maintenance, not being done to meet and satisfy power demands? Well, we have seen a very diverse type of reaction to the Fukushima disaster. Uh, whereas most of the nuclear countries, and there is now 33 in the world, which is not that much neither, but it's quite a number of countries, we have seen reactions where very expensive, very lengthy backfitting programs have been put in place. And France is, by the way, one of the, the examples. And it's one of the reasons that we, we're getting into longer outage times. There is obviously a global trend towards longer outage trends, and that is due to the, the average age of facilities around the planet. For me, the United States is a real exception. The US has run its nuclear power plant fleet at a load factor of around 90% on average over the past decade. That's incredible. It's not only a number that is incredible, but it has to be seen in the, in, the, in the context of the size of the fleet. It's the largest fleet on Earth. It's now currently 93 reactors operating versus 56 in, in France, so when they're operating. So what the U.S. nuclear industry claims is that they actually have decreased, they have decreased maintenance and O&M costs, operation and maintenance costs over the past decade, since 2012, constantly. That's surprising. It might be worrying because you wonder how, how can you spend less money on a fleet of machines that's amongst the oldest on the planet. The average age of a US of the US reactor fleet is over 40 years now. I don't know. I haven't done the analysis and but I would certainly think it would be worthwhile to see 
how that is possible and what the consequences are on safety. When it comes to the general question of pressure on safety authorities, well, of course. I mean, imagine a fleet like France, which is, uh, you know, quite differently from the US. It's highly standardized. And we have seen it in December when the most recent four reactors have been taken off the grid after a problem uh, that is highly safety relevant, you know, cracking in one of the, the emergency core cooling systems had been identified and the other reactors have to be taken off the grid to verify what the situation is. So it is clear that it puts the safety authorities under pressure to do that. What about the next reactors that have to come offline under similar consequences if in January, February, we get really cold weather and we need much more power than we have so far under a very mild, unusually mild winter that we have seen so far? Yeah. Just as a point of comparison, the US is in the low 90s for uptime. What's France at? We haven't seen the figure yet for 2021, but the years before is is in the 60s in terms of load factors. So below 70 as as load factors. So it's it's very bad compared even by the international standard. I'll be plotting my proximity to my nearest reactor being based in the US after this, but uh, that aside. Okay, so the phrase I hear a lot, uh, we're sort of moving towards the future and in the context of these sort of very optimistic predictions that have been made over and over again in the past, but a phrase we hear a lot in the media from people within the industry is that you can't have energy transition without nuclear power and the nuclear power is the greenest form of production there is out there and is the solution ultimately to our to, to tackling carbon and climate goals. And I and I kind of want to move on to that. Can you sort of take us through that argument or provide us your take on it? Well what is at stake is basically the choice of the most climate effective options, the most climate effective tools to get us where we want to be as quickly as possible. It basically means you can only spend a dollar once. If you spend that dollar, you need to bring down greenhouse gas emissions as much as possible, as quickly as possible. So it's the combination between uh, economic effectiveness in time and in in quantity uh, uh, um, terms. If you spend your money on new nuclear power plants, and it does not matter which technology, it's irrelevant. Whatever the technology is, it will be not only the most expensive one, but above all, we know it is a very slow option. So to give you an order of magnitude, we we don't know when I say we, with the world, our analysis on the world, with the World Nuclear Industry Status Report is empirical analysis. So we don't know uh, what happens in the future. We don't do crystal ball analysis, but we know exactly what happened in the past. And that means that the time between construction start and grid connection is on average 10 years, 10 years. Now, today you can, build large solar farms and wind farms in two or three. And, you know, if you calculate 
the process before implementation time of five years at the most. And as I said before, you have to count at least five years for lead time prior to construction uh, beginning in, in the nuclear field. So we're talking about a technology that costs at least four times as much as solar or wind. And especially it's like five times, between two and five times as slow to be implemented. That means that every dollar spent on new nuclear power plants is actually detrimental to climate protection because it's not being available, made available for energy efficiency, first of all, uh, or renewable uh, uh, power options. And then corollary to that is that, okay, these things are very expensive and take a very long time to build. And we're not, we promised we wouldn't touch fusion in this discussion, but there is a lot of, you know, noise, dare I say, hype about these small modular reactors. I guess, as I understand it, the theory being you can build these in a factory and deploy them much more cheaply, much more quickly than traditional large-scale reactors. Is that, uh, where do we sit in the perception versus reality spectrum on that subject? Small modular reactors are actually not new. I mean, they've been around from the beginning of the nuclear uh, history. That's how the nuclear story started, is with small reactors. Now, the term modular has been used for a long time as well. You know, the Westinghouse, for example, claimed in, I believe it was in 2008, that they could build an AP1000 reactor in 36 months due to a modular construction scheme. Well, that didn't work out so well. They started building four of them. Two were abandoned, the VC summer plant in, in, um, in South Carolina, and there's two more Botel, at the Bortel site uh, under construction in, in Georgia. So, and they are far behind schedule under construction since 2013. They were supposed to be um, online in, in 2017. Now, those are not small modular reactors. So what, what, what about the, the, the term small? The International Atomic Energy Agency says 30 to 300 megawatts. So much smaller than the usual size, uh, gigawatt size reactors. In fact, when we look, there's only two in Russia that have been on a barge, swimming reactors that have been put into operation. The target time was 3.7 years. The real construction time was 12.7 years, so almost four times as long. And with that, obviously, the finances uh, were increased, even if we don't know exactly. In Russia, that's not really accessible in terms of real information. In terms of the only other example is two 100 megawatt high temperature reactors that one of which came online in, in China. And that didn't go so well neither because they are under construction since 2012. So the only examples we have are in Russia and China where we don't have similar licensing schemes. We, we don't have a decision-making process like in Western countries. And the only other design that has been uh, licensed in as a generic uh, license in the is in the United States. That's new scale, and it's interesting that that uh, licensed a plant that was designed for 60 megawatts, but soon enough 
not much later, they announced that they would increase the size, quite typical for the nuclear history, by 25% to 77, and and that the, the typical design would be 12 modules, 12 modules on one side. Well, then you get back to a size of over 900 megawatts. So one wonders what is the difference in terms of, you know, nuclear inventories uh, and all the, the issues that, that come along with it. But the main thing to get from there is that, you know, there, there are no prototypes even operating anywhere in the Western world. There's one license, no other license anywhere for any of these designs. These are PowerPoint reactors. I mean, engineers love to make these discuss ideas, and it's great. They can discuss ideas. But the problem is that if we're talking climate change, we're a little bit in a hurry. Yeah. None of these designs will be available before the 2030s at the earliest, if ever. Fascinating. I know it's against the backdrop of an incredible wave of capital trying to get into supporting the energy transition. And it's a very uh, an enlightening take that you've provided us there. So one final question, then I want to just get your take on what happens over the next decade, if, if I dare. One thing that came out of your the report was the role, and this I think our listeners will find this quite worrying, if not shocking, is the role of criminality in the nuclear industry as well, which jeopardizes safety. Could you just give us a couple of words on that? Because it does feature quite prominently in, in, in the status report. Well, in fact, we have covered problems that the industry has run into uh, with criminal activities for a number of years, but in the, in the country by per country sections. And we never had the idea until, until last year to dedicate a, a specific chapter to, to the issue. But then in, it was bizarre in 2020, there was kind of an accumulation of very serious criminal acts uh, linked to the nuclear industry. And, and several of them were in the United States. I mean, the FBI identified a conspiracy of quite amazing scale that involved um, major figures in Congress in Ohio and including the speaker and that were bribed by the utilities. And it, it was significant, like $60 million, if my memory is correct, were involved. And what was at stake? Well, the industry, the utility wanted support for uneconomic existing reactors. So they bribed the representatives to pass legislation accordingly. We had a, we, it became clear on another case that the abandoned, now abandoned after spending some, probably around 10 billion or more on the VC summer project, the former CEO of the utility that, that was, Scana that was involved now has been absorbed by another utility. He's actually now in jail. Uh, he was he got a two-year jail term. Why? Because he has been lying to the regulator and the public about the the, the actual real status of progress of the uh, construction of the nuclear facilities. And th those were two cases. And then we thought, well, 
that's amazing you know those it happened like were revealed in the same summer and then there other cases happened in in japan very major corruption uh story and so i punched in corrupt uh, into the search engine and looked through the report in 2020 and it turned out that the term was uh, there in <laughs> at 14 occasions in various places so I decided to hire a criminologist in order to figure out whether there is one can identify sort of a typology of criminal activity that is present in the industry and that is a problem. And I think that the chapter makes it quite clear that a certain number of criminal activities, for example, counterfeiting of parts this is shocking, yeah. The counterfeiting parts and certificates. Exactly. And and the falsification of quality control certificates is a very broad present broadly present phenomenon. And it and and obviously it's it's uh this happened in in Japan, it happened in Korea, it happened to some extent in France. So it's 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 not just one case, it's not one one story. It's not one, you know, kind of specific area problem, but it's 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 all over the place. Hmm. Well, it's symptomatic, I guess, in some ways of the entire thrust of this discussion, which is increasingly challenging economics and economics from the start that would challenge on basic assumptions that never actually materialized. And secondly, I imagine if you've got a an aging fleet, a thirty six year old nuclear reactor finding the right parts for it without having to do really costly rebuilds starts to introduce some of these incentives to actually hide issues but uh, yeah i mean it, it's um, it's not a pretty picture the costly pressure is increasing that's for sure and an increase on pressure increase areas that involve safety and security is worrying now i want to make it very clear we're you know the work we have done on criminal aspects in the industry is not a sufficient research uh, to uh, label uh, the phenomenon as systemic but certainly it's enough to trigger you know a, a, a real in-depth research whether it is systemic and what can be done about it and if the international atomic energy agency writes a whole report about counterfeiting, then it seems that we're not the only ones are kind of worried about the problems that might be involved with this phenomenon. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I'd love to just get your take and understand all predictions are challenging in this sector. But where do we go from here? Is there anything fundamentally do you think that's going to change the picture of at least outside China dwindling role of nuclear power in global power production? I think we, uh, and we will assess this in more detail uh, if it is this year or next year, but we might have seen peak, peak nuclear. So if you are looking at the renewal rate of nuclear power plants, it's not enough in order to maintain the species. So it will die out. The question is how long it can be can survive, and that means 
plant life extensions. I mean, it's obvious if you look in the United States, there's 93 reactors operating, but at that age with only two reactors under construction, you know, you don't need to be an expert. It's straightforward. This industry will die out in the United States. And if there are some companies, some startups and some excitement around small modular uh, reactors, so be it. But we have seen that before. The, the point is that the, the key driver for this, which is climate change, it's not economics. It doesn't work economically. The time pressure that comes out of that subject is so enormous that if it's judging by the past, and we're good in that, judging by the past, nuclear power has absolutely no possibility to catch up and guarantee its own survival uh, over, the, over the coming decade. So it's only about lifetime extensions. And lifetime extensions, once again, the question is, to me, the same as with new reactors, how much does it cost? If it is today more expensive and more inefficient to extend lifetimes, well, then other options like efficiency and renewables should be should be uh, coming in, that this is possible in terms of supply security has been demonstrated over and over again. Obviously, there have to be some adjustments in the system. You cannot run a, uh, you know, an electricity system that has been for decades vertically integrated with large facilities, transporting power over large distances and raining on consumers to a system which is horizontally integrated where you know electricity flows in all directions everybody will generate power everybody will consume power with intermediate nodes and it's very much like like the internet nobody's talking about building giant computers the computing power is in millions of computers and that's what we're you know that's the trend where we're going and it's interesting that you know a company that drew the the line on nuclear power uh, in 2011, just a few months after Fukushima happened, is Siemens. And you know the announcement on nuclear came in September. In August 2011, Siemens issued a press release stating a strategic alliance with Boeing in the United States, developing doing what? Developing micro microgrids, everything that is between the generator and the consumer. And look today, I mean, Siemens is everywhere in the United States. And the first big client obviously was the US, US military, the largest energy consumer in the United States. Existing nuclear power plants, like, like large coal-fired power, power plants, same thing, are very powerful innovation barriers. You see that the, when you see the difference between the, the German angle in 2011, they, de they decided to, uh, you know, phase out nuclear power over 10 years. What does what did that mean? It meant that you get a 100% investment guarantee over certain quantity of electricity generating capacity that will go out of the market at a given date. Can you imagine that? That's a dream world for an investor because you know you 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 have a gap that you can fill, and it's exactly what happened. 
I mean, the 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 reduction in uh, nuclear electricity generation was compensated twice over over the past uh, 10 years, which allowed, together with a reduction in consumption, to in parallel reduce fossil fuels dramatically in Germany because it was an investment uh, guarantee that that these gaps would open up. And if you see what Japan did, Japan said after the after you know a short period of time, they said they wanted to bring back as many reactors as possible to the grid, which created a perfect investment insecurity. Because nobody knows until today how many, when, how are they going to operate, for how long. So, so it's unclear, and it had led to you know from an innovation point uh, of view a dramatic difference between these two countries. And the same is true for a nuclear country like France dragging their feet on efficiency and renewables. The lantern, the red lantern in, in the European Union, when it comes to their own targets on efficiency and renewables versus uh, uh, Germany that had very ambitious uh, goals and at least, you know, is, is getting close to them, even if I personally believe that they're not going far enough and not fast enough. Yeah. Fascinating. What a powerful final thought and wrap up for us. You've been very gracious with your time. I want to point people towards the World Nuclear Industry Status Report. 2021 is out already. You are the lead author and, and founder of that report. It's free for anyone to go and read through. And they can find it at theworldnuclearreport.org. And we'll put a link in the show notes as well. And I hope to have you back on in the future at some point and, and see where we stand, if, 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 any, <laughs> if any different. But um, it's been a real uh, eye-opener to have the discussion. Thanks so much. I take the opportunity really to highlight the fact that obviously it's a, a great team that came together and, and elaborated this, this report. I mean, the last year's report is over 400 pages and the team is over a dozen experts, including two from Harvard Kennedy School, one from Chatham House, from Technical University Berlin, all those top-notch uh, research organizations and think tanks. So I'm very grateful for for their input in, in into this. I'm I'm the humble coordinator and <laughs> publisher of the results. Well, it's excellent. I encourage people to review it, and uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.